Good morning again. I was uh, in Alhamra Mall, that glorious place, again earlier this week, and I was walking towards Spinney's, and I noticed that there's a new store that has opened there on the ground floor. I was walking past it, and behind the cash register, I saw these words, self-love, written boldly behind the cash register. So I walked back, and very oddly, I took a picture of it. And this is what it read. Rise up with self-love. When we are told that we are not enough, self-love is our superpower. Lifting us up to fight together. It's brave and daring, fearless and bold. Self-love is action. And it's time to act. Join the self-love uprising. I let the lady know why I was taking the picture. It was a little awkward, but I had to take that picture. Is what that sign says true? That when we know that we're not enough, self-love is our superpower. Now, we live in a world that believes deeply That is true. How would a society work if everyone loved self most? What happens when our self-love comes into conflict with our responsibilities to our families, to our children, to our friends, to our colleagues, to our churches? When an entire society is filled with people who are only interested in themselves, what's best for them, what makes them happy. I mean, how many people can the world revolve around all at once? Self-love. Is it really fulfilling or is it fatal? Does self-love give you life or does it take your life? Are the idols that we love enough to satisfy the deepest thirst of our souls? This morning, we think about all of this together from Genesis 29, 31 to chapter 30, verse 24, as we make our way back into Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. So big number 29, little number 31. When we come to this text, Jacob, he's now married to Leah and Rachel. Rachel by choice, Leah by deceit and manipulation. When we come to this text, what we're ultimately learning is the origin story of most of the 12 tribes of Israel. But God's people in this text were and are meant to learn much more than how the 12 tribes came into existence. We are meant to learn about God's salvation, His surprising ways, His power, and the emptiness and the misery of looking to and loving and longing for a salvation in any other place or person than God himself. Here's the main point I want you to get. 
this morning. Give up struggling. Salvation comes by the grace and power of God alone. Give up struggling. Salvation comes by the grace and power of God alone. If you're not a Christian, I hope you know this for the first time. And if you are a Christian, I hope to remove some of the amnesia, your forgetfulness of this, even this past week. We're going to consider two questions from the text. How do you see and whom will you believe? How do you see? How do you see? Point one, verse 31, all the way to chapter 30, verse 13. How do you see? Look down to chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction... For now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Silpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Silpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Silpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I. For women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Perspective, how you see what you see matters. You know, multiple people can be eyewitnesses to the same car wreck, and each of them can give a different perspective on on what they saw happen. So I looked at some studies. They go all the way back. 50 years, and they, they show how eyewitness testimony, as compelling as it is, as, as necessary as it is, 
when the certain conditions are present, it can prove to be unreliable. So it can be as simple as the way that you are asked questions. Did you see the broken headlight? To which most respondents said yes. Rather than, did you see a broken headlight? To which most respondents said no. In this text, the importance is how you see. That determines how they acted. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw. Look at chapter 30, verse 9. When Leah saw. It's all about how they're seeing. Verse 31. When the Lord saw. And when the Lord sees, he acts. What did the Lord see? He saw clearly that Leah was hated. It's not stated, but it's implied Rachel was loved. And of course, the affection that's in view here is is Jacob's. So once again in Genesis, we have conflict and struggle over having children. Rachel may be loved, but Rachel is barren. The Lord sees that Leah is the underdog, so he opens her womb. And then notice the pattern. Verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son. Verse 34, she conceived and bore a son. Verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son. And so then the pattern of the entire story, the, a son is born, we learn the name, and we learn why their name is what it is. Each of their names is a word play in Hebrew that signifies the significance of the circumstances of their birth. So Leah names the firstborn Reuben, verse 32, because the Lord has looked upon her affliction. Reuben means see, a son. And then verse 33, Simeon, sounds like the Hebrew word for heard. The Lord has heard that I am hated. Leah names her third son, verse 34, Levi, which sounds like the word for attached. She reasons that with his birth, now my husband will be attached to me. And then verse 35, Judah, her fourth son, this time I will praise the Lord. Judah sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. So here's Leah. She understands well that her fertility, which was so prized in the ancient world, was the Lord's doing. The Lord saw and acted. Verse 32, because the Lord has looked. Verse 33, because the Lord has heard. God has seen, God has heard. It's his providential ruling in all things. From the womb, to the tomb, in the world, and everything in it. God sees, God hears, God acts. So verse 35, I will praise the Lord. So she understands God's mercy and power in giving her these boys, but it's not enough. As we learn the names of the boys, we learn a lot about Leah. She's the wife he doesn't want. And she feels it. The four sons would have been in many ways the greatest treasure a woman could be given in the ancient world. 
but it's not enough. What does she want? You know what she wants. She wants Jacob's love. And it's clear to her that she thinks children will be her way of getting that. I wonder if you come here this morning, if you're honest, and you want something. Approval, attention, a relationship, maybe salvation. And you keep thinking, if I just do that, if I accomplish that, if I abstain from that, I'll get it. This is an ancient story that is meant to confront you. We don't know why Leah stopped bearing children at this point. It's possible, maybe it's even probable. Jacob was only with her for the sake of having children. Otherwise, he's with Rachel. We don't know. We know Leah wants Jacob's love, and she thinks the children will get that. And multiple children by the power of God do not satisfy her. When we read this, you could feel how unsatisfied she is. She's working to get love. She does not work from being loved. And there's a massive difference, an eternal difference, between those two. Leah is wanting from Jacob what can only be found and received in God. So let me say to you, brothers and sisters, your salvation, your vindication, your rest will not, cannot finally come from what you work for, what you struggle for. When I first started my first job, In my life in Washington, D.C., I learned quickly in that city that your entire value is sized up in the first few minutes of a conversation. Uh, Generally, after I would say, I am Josh, the next question would be, what do you do? That was always the question. Always the question. Because if you were like me and you said, as I did in my first few years in that city, I'm a staff assistant. Well, you may not know it, but that was a clue to the person speaking to me that I was in an entry-level position and was probably of no worth to them. I could feel in that conversation just how worthless to them I became. My entire worth depended on me being able to give a much more impressive answer to the question, what do you do? Now, things have come full circle for me. When people say, what do you do? I get to say I'm the pastor of the evangelical church in the city. And sometimes that takes an even more awkward turn than they were expecting. The Lord saw Leah. He acted on her behalf. Leah sees the Lord's work, but she sees even more what she does not have. She's yearning for the the love of, of Jacob If you're a Christian, you've trusted in Christ to save you, but I wonder if you continually, foolishly, look to other places for your rest, for your validation, your your vindication. I I, I could only imagine the, honestly, the the months, not just a physical pain for Leah, but the emotional pain, the insecurity with each of these pregnancies. It, It almost feels like she's on a treadmill, And there's no emergency stop button. 
She, she wants with each one of those children for the treadmill to stop. I wonder if you're on a treadmill of works this morning that you're actually trying to satisfy your soul with a salvation in which you can say, oh, you must love me. You must accept me because I did this. Then you're looking for a salvation that will not satisfy you. It certainly will not save you. That, that treadmill will never slow down. It's never going to get you where you want it to go. On that treadmill, you'll never be able to say enough and walk off of it. What salvation are you looking for this morning? For you as a Christian, if you've repented and trusted in Christ, have you lost sight of what makes you matter? What will give actual rest and joy to your soul? Leah is seeing the world in such a way that she needs more than anything Jacob to love her. And he should have loved her. And she's spending herself to get that love. Christians can be those who say, who confess salvation is by the power and the grace of God. But what we run after in our lives tells a totally different story. I was thinking about us in this way. I think for us, this can work itself out in a number of ways. It can take on the form of something good, like Christian ministry. Do you look to your ministry, what you can accomplish through your ministry, as what will make you impressive or what will make you matter to the opinion of people that you want it to matter in front of? That if those people would just come to faith or if, if this result is achieved, it will prove I didn't come here and waste my time. I've done that. It won't satisfy. There's always more. You were meant to be satisfied in God's grace alone, not in what you achieve. And when you anchor your soul there, it frees you to be successful or unsuccessful by whatever metric the world measures it and simply to be faithful to the Lord. What about in your job? Do you need to be the perfect teacher or leader to prove something about yourself to someone else? Or maybe you, you've come here and you're going to prove something to your family, whether it's making enough money or you'll promote up in the job. None of these have the power to give to you what you're looking to them for. We need God's supernatural grace to free us from our natural belief that what we achieve will give us what we long for. We are in a country filled with people who've come here to prove something by what they achieve. Now, achievement is wonderful, but it's miserable when you're looking to it to give you your worth, to define you. Christians are defined by Christ not by what we achieve. You see this struggle in Leah. She's struggling to get love, but she cannot struggle enough to get free. The more she struggles, the more enslaved she seems to be. One pastor said this to me so insightfully years ago. You will never be free to struggle until you quit struggling to be free. Why do we look at what we can accomplish when we can only gain that from what God can give? I would say it's because deep down, undeserved, free grace and mercy run so counter to the way this world works. 
Love and acceptance and approval are based on what we earn. The gospel says no to that. Now, teenagers, you are at a stage in life where you're so prone, and you're going to struggle with this as an adult, to base your worth based on that person's thoughts of you. Or maybe that group's approval. And that's a treadmill that the gospel, Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection, frees you from. Frees you from earning your approval from others. It frees you to anchor your soul, even at a young age, in the undeserved love of God. You don't have to achieve to prove why you ultimately matter. The finished work of Christ means salvation is a gift. Christ struggled to earn salvation so that you and I would not have to. I hope for you this morning, you will see the treadmill of earning love by what you accomplish is exhausting. We feel Leah's exhaustion here. The Lord opens her womb again and again. The Lord sees her, he acts on her behalf, but Leah can't see this clearly yet. Rachel also sees in this text, chapter 30, verse 1, she sees that she bears Jacob no children. She envies her sister. So what does Leah want? She wants Jacob's love. What does Rachel want? She wants Jacob's children. And instead of praising God for the divine gift he's giving to Leah, she's jealous. Leah had what Rachel longed for. Both want what the other one has. When Rachel saw, she envied. I want you to think about jealousy. What someone else has makes you unhappy. You want it. They have it. It affects your joy in God. You you can be jealous someone has children, a better family, better circumstances, a larger ministry, a better job. Some of you will know that I enjoyed theater back in the day. Wish those days weren't over, but they are. And I, uh, I actually played Iago in Shakespeare's Othello in a uh, play in high school. And I, I remember this line vividly to this day. Uh, Iago says to Othello, who's the king, Oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Your jealousy mocks you. Your jealousy reminds you that you don't have what you want. It reveals that you think, I deserve that. And it also reveals that what you have, you you don't think is undeserved. It is your discontentment with what God has given you. Reveals that we think we need that to be enough to feel the joy that we lack. So in your heart this morning, do you say, Salvation is all by grace, but at the same time, your jealousy reveals you believe God owes you something you don't have. For Rachel, it was children. She did not trust that God was good and wise in the circumstances he had given her. Her jealousy showed, God, I think you're getting it wrong. How do you root out jealousy? You root it out by thinking more of God's undeserved mercy toward you. 
Brothers and sisters, we deserve hell. We deserve it. Anything other than hell is mercy. It's all gift. And if you're a Christian, you are going to inherit heaven. You are united to Christ. Now, how small is the thing you're jealous about compared to that? If you're a Christian, God is doing maximum eternal good to you right now, even in what you don't have. You may not understand that fully, but it's a cosmic impossibility for God to be doing anything better to you than he's doing to you right now. Confidence in God and his goodness is the antidote to jealousy. Your good and gracious king does only good to each one of his blood-bought children. So do this heart work to consider what makes you jealous, to help you fight for your joy in God. Work to praise God for the circumstances he's given you and keep praising the Lord until he brings you to that point. And then ask God to use those circumstances not to make you jealous, but to make you holy. Like Christ, rest in God's goodness. That's how we fight God's uh, fight jealousy. We fight to see and believe that if there were anything better for me in my eternal good right now, my good father would give it to me. Rachel does not see and then pray. She sees and she envies. And it leads her then to say to Jacob, give me children or I die. Now here's a free aside. If there's anything in your life that you have to have it or you will die, that's an idol. And you need to get rid of it. Rachel's issue is not with Leah, it's with God. Children are her idol. So in your battle with jealousy, it's never the other person or their circumstances. It's God that you have issues with. And for the first time there in verse 2, finally Jacob speaks. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? He's so right. He's not in God's place. His practice is so wrong. He's not like his father, Isaac, who, remember, prayed for his wife for 20 years to have a a child. Jacob does not pray for Rachel. We'll talk about him a little more later. What does Rachel do? She doesn't pray either, as great women in the Scriptures are commended for. She's acting by sight. She's offering up Bilhah to have children for her. Verse 3, it's not commended, but this was common practice in the ancient world for us a, substitu- a servant to stand in as a substitute and so for the children to come and belong to the main wife. And Bilhah has these two children. Once again, the, this phrase conceived and bore a son. Verses 5, verse 7, we never hear her voice because she's used. We do hear Rachel's. And she names her sons based on her perceptions of her circumstances. Verse 6, Dan, sounds like the Hebrew word for for judge. She reasons, God has judged me. He's heard my voice and given me a son. So Dan, from her perspective, is evidence of God's favored judgment toward her. And then verse 8, Bilhah's second son, Rachel names him Naphtali, Hebrew word, for wrestling because she reasons with many wrestles, wrestlings. I have wrestled my sister and have prevailed. Jacob, who wrestled with Esau from the womb, is now watching his wives wrestle with each other. 
Jacob struggled against Esau for the favor and blessing of Isaac. Leah and Rachel struggling against each other for favor with Jacob. Sin is a mess, a disaster. And God's people were meant to read this and see this is a mess. Nothing is hidden. We're meant to see that God gives grace to sinful people. He uses sinful people. People who are so wicked, they're trying to outdo each other based on who can in whatever way bring the most children into the world. Rachel, so desperate for children, can't have them, offers up Bilhah. Rachel saw what she didn't have, and it drove her to these bad ends. It's not just what you're seeing, it's how you're interpreting what you're seeing. What you see cannot be more authoritative than what God has said to us in his word, what God has done in Christ on the cross. So interpret what you see through the lens of God's unchangeable faithfulness. Do not interpret God's faithfulness through the lens of what you see. The order matters. When you see God's faithfulness first, you start to believe and see God works all things for our good. What Rachel saw controlled her. And then verse 9, now Leah sees. When Leah saw that she was done having children and Rachel was having them, she offers up Zilpah. This house can't get more dysfunctional. There was a musical called Annie, Get Your Gun. I want to ask who's seen it. But the two main characters in this musical are Annie and Frank, and they have this kind of competitive romance. And there was this song that they ended up singing to each other. Anything that you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. And it goes on and on. I'm not singing the song for you. Doesn't the song at times, at times sound like children? Here's Leah and Rachel living out this song. She sees her... Rachel giving birth, so she offers up her servant. She bears two children. First son, verse 11, Gad. Sounds like the Hebrew for good fortune. Leah believes there that good fortune has come. Then verse 13, she names her son Asher. Sounds like happy because with his birth, Leah declares, happy am I. So we have a lot of children at this point. Now I want you to realize that this would have come within that second seven years that Jacob was working to pay off Laban to marry Rachel, which means that some of these women would have been pregnant at the same time. Can you imagine that house? Leah, Rachel, both acting to use others for their own self-interest. How powerful self-love and interest is. Invasions of countries can happen when rulers don't like what they see. Mistrust between members of the same body can develop when one person doesn't like what they see. Now, there are times what we see is wrong, and it means that we should act. But here, I would say Leah and Rachel's sight is driven by their idolatry. When you look at your own life and your relationships, what do you see How are you seeing them? Is the lens through which you're filtering everything centered on you and love of self, or is it God and his glory? 
I wonder if some of you need the eyes of your heart readjusted this morning. Have you started to look around at everyone else, what the Lord is doing in others' lives, and you interpret every bit of it in terms of you, how it affects you? God, by His grace, frees us from the treadmill of self-love, of interpreting things and life on ourselves to be centered on Him, to love Him, to live for Him. The Lord saw, Rachel saw, Leah saw, and how they saw what they saw determined how they acted. How do you see? Secondly, whom will you believe? Whom will you believe? See verses 13 to the end of the, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Look down at chapter 30, verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar and Leah conceived again. And she bore Jacob a sick son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. What are these mandrakes? In the ancient world, these mandrakes were a fruit that were widely, wrongly thought to be an aphrodisiac. Song of Psalms describes mandrakes as giving forth fragrance in chapter 7. They were, they were thought of as some kind of love fruit. They were often foolishly believed to bring on fertility. Rachel and Leah just struggled against each other through their servants. Now they struggle against each other through mandrakes. And Rachel, going to Leah, desperate for some of her son's mandrakes, feels a lot like Esau going to Jacob for the stew that he had made. But this time, both of them want what the other one has. Rachel wants the mandrakes, which she presumes will give her children. And after six sons, four from her own body, two from Zilpah's, Leah still wants Jacob's love. Verse 15. Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And then Rachel cuts the deal. He can lie with you tonight in exchange for the mandrakes. It's very clear that Rachel controls the house. She even controls with whom Jacob sleeps. And Jacob is passive in this entire narrative. He's not leading. He's silent. 
He's simply willing to do his part for more children to be born. He never prayed for Rachel. He does not protect Leah. He has shown to us to be nothing more than a man for hire, a bargaining chip between his wives so that they can get what their hearts crave. Like father, like daughters. Laban treated his daughters as bargaining chips with Jacob. Now his daughters treat Jacob the same. God saves sinful people, wicked people. And here at this point, Rachel is now resorting to myth, mandrakes to get those children. And Leah is willing to use the mandrakes to get the time and the intimacy with Jacob that she's desperate for. He comes home in verse 16. Leah says, you must come to me tonight. I've hired you with these mandrakes. But then something changes. Leah, who we read only a few verses earlier, had ceased bearing. Now, by the power of God, verse 17, God listened to her. She conceived and she bore Jacob a fifth son. Zilpah did. In verse 18, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called him Issachar, which means reward. So what's the narrative trying to tell us clearly? He was not born by the mandrakes. It was God who listened to her. Leah has prayed, and it is God, not the mandrakes, that the narrator makes clear, gave her the reward of Issachar. And then remarkably, a sixth son, Zebulon, whose name means honor, and Dinah, who's introduced here but will come up again tragically in a few chapters. It's possible Jacob is honoring Leah or trending in that way, but it is certain God's listening to here leads to God acting. Now Leah has six sons, 54 months, for four years of being pregnant, all the struggle that goes with that, and all she wants is her husband's love. What we want at the deepest core of our beings is not something we can earn as a wage. It must be something God gives as a gift. God here keeps giving graciously, undeservedly, to two women who know nothing but a life of struggle to earn. And then look at verse 22. This unbelievable surprise. Then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her. Did you catch that? Rachel turned from the struggling and the striving, not the mandrakes. It was God. She turned away from effort and manipulation. She has clearly prayed and asked God for what he alone can do by his own power. God listened to her. But then notice what preceded the listening. God remembered It's God's grace and initiative that comes before God's gracious act. Genesis chapter 8, God remembered Noah. Exodus 2, God remembered his covenant. God never forgets, but when the scripture says he remembers, it's making clear he knows and he sees. Here's a chapter that after so much anger and jealousy, 
We see God graciously acting. It's not her initiative. It's not her struggle. It's not the mandrakes that gives her the child. It's God and his power and kindness. God listened. God opened her womb. What she wanted so desperately could only be obtained by the power of God. That's what God's teaching his people. She named him Joseph. He'd taken away her reproach, the reproach she'd felt of being childless in that world for so many years. Joseph means to add. It's her final prayer. May he add to me another son. God will do that at the cost of her life. This is a chapter filled with human sin, jealousy and anger and discontent, human beings looking anywhere for rest other than God, other than what God alone can give. Human struggle will never achieve the salvation we were made for. But praise God, neither will human struggle and unfaithfulness prevent it. Once again, God is making clear to His people that His grace will prevail over human unfaithfulness. This story began with God opening Leah's womb. This story ends with God opening Rachel's. God's power creates God's people from first to last. From Rachel, who gives birth to Joseph, whom God will send ahead to save his people. And then Leah, from whom comes Judah, from whom will come the Messiah. We are meant to see that our future, our salvation, will not come by human effort and struggle, but by the work and power of God. Natural means, mandrakes or manipulation, they're not the way of salvation. God tells us to turn away from what is natural to what is supernatural. God's unfailing graciousness to sinners on display here. Sin is nowhere hidden in this chapter. It's on full display because God wants his people to see that he works through sinful people to bring into this world a sinless Savior. God's Son, who comes into the world from this family to save us from the sin that has enslaved us. God makes clear that his grace and salvation is his no to human struggle and effort. God was working through all of these events to bring about the birth of the Messiah, God's own son who comes into this world, who lives a perfect life in his flesh. He represents his people and then he dies a shameful death on a cross to save. And God raises him from the dead. God's power by giving life here in the womb would be nothing compared to God's power by giving resurrection life in the tomb. By his death and resurrection, Christ accomplished salvation and God was preparing his people for this. If you've not repented, if you've not ceased from your own striving for salvation, I long for you to entrust yourself to Christ. Turn from your own struggle, your own rebellion, to believe on Christ, to get off the treadmill of works, to stop thinking you're okay with God simply because you're a pretty good person, to believe on Christ who came to die and be raised for sinners. Birth by the power of God prepares us for the new birth by the power of God. Stop struggling and striving for the salvation that Christ alone gives. Simply believe. Brothers and sisters, what you love will determine how you see. 
and it will determine whom or what you believe. You will sacrifice for what you love. You will deny yourself for what you love. Is water who you love able to hold the weight you're giving it this morning? Or does it force you to stay on a treadmill that you cannot make stop? Let Christ's love and his work quiet you and empower you to faithfulness that is liberating and not enslaving. Let the love of Christ free you to be content, to praise him for the circumstances of your life that are yours right now. The gospel frees you. It empowers you to rejoice when jealousy lurks, and it empowers you to be satisfied when your life is maybe not like you would like it. In the birth stories of the tribes of Israel, we see that the God of Israel is not like what we expect. He gives grace to sinners. He's faithful when his people are unfaithfulness. And he gives physical and spiritual life, not by human manipulation, but as a gift by his own power.